Hi, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. At FX Medicine, we strive to be clinically relevant for you. So please get in touch with us if there's a topic you'd like us to explore or a specific expert you'd like us to interview. You can email info at fxmedicine.com.au or contact us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us all the way from Belmont, California, is holistic mum and doc, Dr. Elisa Song, who's a holistic paediatrician, paediatric functional medicine expert, and mum to two crazy fun kids. In her integrative paediatric practice, wholefamilywellness.org, she's helped thousands of kids get to the root causes of their health concerns and helped their parents understand how to help their children thrive. Dr. Song created Healthy Kids, Happy Kids to share her advice and adventures as a holistic paediatrician and mum. You can follow her blog at healthykidshappykids.com and get daily tips and inspiration from her on her Facebook page. Now everyone can have their very own virtual holistic paediatrician. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Dr. Elisa Song. How are you? Great. Thank you, Andrew. I'm so glad to be back again. Now, we're talking about controversial and certainly confounding topics today. We're talking about neurodevelopmental disorders in kids and some of their reasons, some of their treatment options. So I guess we have to start right back at the beginning, autism. Why is autism on the rise around the globe? It seems to be exploding. Well, it certainly does seem to be exploding. And this is, you know, there is some controversy around what exactly is triggering autism. I think that what we're realizing now is that there's not just one trigger, that there are many different subsets of autism, if you will. And it's really the interplay of these genetic risk factors with these environmental factors that then sort of interplay to develop these symptoms of autism, sometimes very early on, sometimes as young as three months or six months of age, and sometimes not until later. Um, I don't think it's just a matter of better diagnosis. I don't think we're just picking up kids with autism more. I think that there is a very real increase. And, you know, if you ask any parent today to look at their kids' classrooms, classrooms today look so different than the classrooms that I remember as a child Mm. and that you remember as a child. I mean, you know, look at every classroom nowadays, at least in the United States, and there are going to be at least a handful of kids who have sensory issues or autism or ADHD or other neurodevelopmental disorders, and they're having a really hard time. Mm. So, you know, the numbers, when we look at the numbers, if we are on this trajectory, right now the U.S has about maybe one in 68 or one in 45 kids with autism spectrum disorder. This rate, that was measured back in 2014, back in, gosh, back in 1995, Mm. it was about one in 500. Yeah. So at this rate, by 2033, estimates are showing that maybe one in four kids will have autism. And, you know, we're not actually in the U.S. the highest 
uh, country with the rates of autism. You know, Australia, if you look at the top 10, Australia has the yeah. dubious honor of being number seven. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the U.S. is number five, but the number one and two, number two is the U.K., number one is Japan. So it is hitting every ethnicity, every country. Uh, and, you know, I have to say with the environmental toxin issue, our genetics really haven't changed Right, our genes don't change, but what our genes interact with in the environment yes. that changes profoundly, and that has changed profoundly since we were kids. I mean, I still remember the first TV dinner, <laughs> you know, getting our first microwave, yeah, you know, getting my first cell phone in pediatrics residency, you know, having you know rice aroni and hamburger helper and Kool Aid. I mean, those were like the best foods ever when I was a kid. <laughs> right? Hashtag and, not. And you know, <laughs> and when we look at you know who is having kids with autism. It's, it's, you know, my generation of, of parents who are having kids with autism and nowhere before in history have we been exposed to so many pesticides and artificial flavors and processed foods and electromagnetic radiation. So I think that's playing a big role. Can I ask though about, you know, we mentioned that it's not just a reporting issue, but what about being classified mm -hmm. as another diagnosis? You know, these kids would have been institutionalized if they were um, severe autism. And so they would have quite possibly been diagnosed with a different psychiatric disorder, you know, maybe, you know, catatonia yeah. or something like that. You know, I, I think... Yes, I do think it plays an issue in that we are recognizing it more and identifying it more and really understanding how to pick the signs of autism in younger and younger kids. So I do think that is playing a role, that mm. we're able to get a handle on it earlier and identify earlier, and we have better diagnostic criteria. Right. Uh, but but it's, it's not just that. Right. I mean, there's real increase. So I think that is playing a role, but there's also other things going on in our environment and in our society and in our households that we need to take a look at. Just a point on diagnosis. I noticed that in DSM, I think it's five, they don't recognize autism spectrum disorder now. Um, but I think you and I have spoken that they've broadened the diagnosis of autism, but autism spectrum disorder dis has disappeared. Is this convenient well, because it was costing money? Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is it's it's not that they got rid of the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. They got rid of autism spectrum, Asperger syndrome, PDD, NOS, autistic disorder, childhood disintegrative disorder, all of these different categories and clumped them all into autism spectrum disorder. So now there's just one term. You're not Asperger's, you're not PDD. So, uh, you know, and I think that does a couple of things. I think it does, it take some of the nuance out of what's going on with kids. And I don't know necessarily that um, having just one lump diagnosis is such a good thing because then we can't necessarily understand how to tailor our treatments, whether they're behavioral or, um, you know, cognitive interventions or speech and language and physical therapy and occupational therapy interventions or biomedical interventions. Um, but I, and I do think it, it is a, a convenient term though, because we don't have to necessarily uh, go down all of the checklists and decide which specific autism disorder does this child have. So I wonder, I remember people when, when the diagnostic criteria came out that there were a lot of parents throwing up their arms in dismay because what they were fearful of was that the funding for their child for support was going to be withdrawn. Yeah. And that, that was my concern. Yeah. What's the reality yeah, of this? Yeah, you know, 
Yeah, I don't know what what it's been like in the in Australia, but um, in the U.S., um, there has been greater parity for services for autism spectrum, and now insurance actually does have to c- cover applied behavioral analysis. I remember when I opened my practice back in 2005, uh, I actually purposefully did not put down a diagnosis of autism on our, you know, insurance billing because I knew and parents knew that autism wasn't going to be covered, that it was considered a mental health diagnosis only and uh, services would not be would not be covered under their insurance. Yeah. Now it's different. Now parents are asking for the diagnosis on on you know on my records. So I think that is shifting. I think that there is more um, recognition that autism spectrum disorder is not just a mental health disorder, but it is a neurodevelopmental and medical disorder. Yeah. And services are being better covered, but there, there's still a long way to go. Yeah. I'll, I'll throw this one out to our listeners. Please, if you have, you know, uh, examples um, that you've verified in your country, um, and, you know, indeed we're in Australia, please let us know on fxmedicine.com.au. Drop us a line and let us know what your situation is, because we'd really like to get across this and find out what really is being treated and, and where, you know, or how, how families are being supported with this disorder. Um, yeah. So yeah. let's go into etiology a bit. You know, there's a lot of controversy with the etiology. You, you mentioned that it's mm-hmm. multifactorial. Humans aren't good at looking at multifactorial stuff, but I do remember um, a couple of groups looking at certain genetic factors. Yeah. So, you know, I just actually saw a couple of papers this past week. I mean, you know, there are new, new genetic SNPs and mutations that are being identified more commonly in kids on the spectrum, it's so hard to say that those are causative genes. So I think we need to look at not just what genes make us more susceptible. That would be fascinating to know because if we know that a certain subset of genetic mutations will make this child much more susceptible to developing autism, then we can be uh, even more careful mm. with what we put into that child's body and how we support their brain and immune system development very early on, which yeah. I think we should be doing with all babies, but it can help us target that a little bit better. Uh, but then we also know that there are some suspected environmental factors that are triggers for autism. We know that environmental chemical pollutants can play a role. And in fact, there are pockets in the Bay Area with higher levels of air pollution that are correlated with higher rates of autism. Uh We know prenatal exposures are really important. So there are some medications like acetaminophen or paracetamol, antidepressants, maternal exposure prenatally to household chemicals like pesticides, even heavy metals, ultrasound. Those have all been linked with higher risks for autism, maternal vitamin D levels as well. And then postnatally, we know that gut dysbiosis can play a huge role for kids on the autism spectrum. Vaccines are highly controversial, but I do believe that vaccines play a role. They're never, you know, there's never just one thing, though. Mm. You know, I think that we in Western medicine, we're looking for that one trigger. You know, what was that one one thing that, that made this child sick? And it's not that simple. Typically, there's a, a kind of culmination of various, you know, triggers along the way, yeah, and then there's a yeah. tipping point, and the vaccine might be a tipping point. Yeah. But there might be other tipping points. Emotional stress is a huge one because we know emotional stress creates just as much physiologic inflammation and neurotransmitter imbalance as physical stress. 
So, you know, there's so many factors. I think, though, you know, for kids on the spectrum, we, we always start with the gut. In functional medicine, we always start with the gut. And I think that is a very important place to start prenatally, even preconception, when we look at the factors that go into developing an infant's brain and, you know, immediately postnatally. Hmm. I just, I saw this fascinating study. Well, I thought it was fascinating. <laughs> they actually gave babies um, probiotic supplementation. Just one probiotic, it was lactobacillus rhamnosus. This was actually a byproduct of the study that looked at, Isolori's study looking at uh, lactobacillus rhamnosus with eczema and atopic illness. Uh, so they supplemented babies for six months, and then they measured the gut microbiota at various points in infancy up to two years of age and then 13 years of age. So what was fascinating was that the kids who were supplemented with probiotics up to six months of age did not develop ADHD or Asperger's. And the kids who were not supplemented had a much higher risk significantly that, uh, of developing Asperger's or ADHD. Now, what was fascinating to me, though, was that when they looked at the gut microbiota at 13 years of age, no difference. There was a difference in infancy. So the thought is that, at, that these kind of probiotic supplementation and our gut microbiota prime the nervous system, prime the immune system very early on at these critical stages of infant brain development. And when that happens at a critical point in brain development, the subsequent dysfunction that can happen in the gut-brain axis will last into adulthood, into adolescence, despite your gut microbiota composition. I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's really fascinating. They're learning so much more about the gut-brain axis. I've, I've had it said mm-hmm. to me, though, that you know we, we still are compartmentalizing ourselves when we say gut-brain axis because we are continuous. It was a very um, very um, salient point that somebody brought up with, with me, and I went, ah, good, <laughs> you know, yep, fair cop. Yeah, Um Can I just ask, though, let's, let's just go right back to basics, the hallmarks of autism. Now, most mm-hmm. of us are, uh, you know, we're au fait with things like the rocking and the emotional lashouts, the the inability to read emotions and the lack of effect, mm-hmm. the lack of connection with the outside world. Can you give us a definite um, diagnostic criteria, if you like, of autism and then maybe, you know, even dabble in some ASD type symptoms as well, how they might differ? Oh, that's... Um... This is an hour <laughs> long, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I can I can first start with, you know, there are very early signs of autism. Now, with very early signs of autism, uh, you can see these signs even as early as four months or six months of age. And even then, if you are an astute observer, you will notice avoidance of eye contact, not responding to their name, which six-month-old baby should do not looking at the object that you're pointing to with your finger and following, right. not showing you toys. You know, kids who play with toys, even at nine months of age, will look at the toy in their hand and then look at their mom or dad and show it to them and reference their parents. So there's none of that. Of course, speech can be delayed. And even in infancy, they can have this perseverative and repetitive play. And older kids are going to have those limited social interactions. But, you know, if they develop language uh, develop speech, then they, in the past, we called that Asperger's, right? Asperger's is really more of the high-functioning autism where language is intact, but it's, it's, uh, it's a repetitive, almost robotic 
language. Yeah. And um, there may be a lot of echolalia or perseveration on different ideas and different conversations. So, you know, there is a is that huge spectrum. And I think that's why they got rid of all of those kind of PDD, NOS, Asperger's, um, autism diagnoses because it was so confusing because there, there were very few times when it was absolutely clear cut. Mm. I think the biggest thing is the social interactions and this perseverative sort of rigidity, um, even if language is present, it's a communication impairment. Uh, and, and the play tends to be mm, lacking in that reciprocity. So in terms of actual diagnostic criteria, I think, you know, the DSM-5 puts autism now more into three domains mm. instead of having these separate categories. Right. And, you know, looking at social impairment, language and communication impairment, and these repetitive restricted behaviors. And that's where we look to see does my child have all of these? Yeah. And because we can have children who have more repetitive, rigid play, but their social interactions and their language and communication skills may be fine, or there may be, they may not have these rigidities and stimming behaviors, but have language and communication delays. What about the, the concept of this lack of um, filtration of outside stimuli, like for instance, near and far noises? Normally we can block out far noises if we're concentrating on a conversation with, with, that we're having with somebody close, even if that be something like a jackhammer, but it's been said that these kids can't. Is that true? And how do you assess that? You know, and I have to be totally honest, I don't actually... Um diagnose kids per se with autism because for that they need a full battery of neuropsychological testing and they'll either see a developmental pediatrician in the States or a child psychologist who, you know, is trained in neuropsychology. So, you know, that's a little bit outside of, of my domain in terms of exactly how you get to the diagnosis, but it is true. I mean, you know, just from a whole sensory standpoint, kids on the spectrum have difficulty filtering and, um, really specifying the, the sensory input that they're receiving and and can get shut down because of that. You know, a lot of kids are kind of shut down, not seeming like they're aware. However, once we use our biomedical interventions and dietary changes and behavioral interventions and kids can start communicating in whatever way, whether it's with a keyboard or, you know, they can, or, or with spoken language or they write, they can express that they're hearing everything and they understand it's just not being filtered and it's too much and that's why they that have to be locked in. Or, you know, I've had kids where once they are headed on the road to recovery and can start writing to me or talking to me are really angry too mm. because they're fully understanding what we're saying about them right in front of them without, um, and we don't have that filter. We're not, you know, we're not sort of... Um, filtering the way we're talking about them and not talking to them. Mm. So I think we just have so much more to learn about how kids on the spectrum are uh, negotiating their sensory input and understanding what's going on and relating to us because there is that relation there. I've had kids saying, you know, when I'm flapping and banging my head in the corner and, and screaming, I am, I don't, I'm totally aware of what I'm doing and I'm, I understand what you're saying. So wow. it's, I, my, my heart goes out to these families and these children because, you know, there, there is a way that they're communicating that we don't understand. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and so 
most kids on the autism spectrum do not have mental retardation. And most kids with autism spectrum, if we can break through and help them to communicate in whatever way, um, we can learn so much from them. And sometimes, and and full recovery is possible, but at the same time, we can get kids so much healthier and be, be able to communicate um, even if it's not necessarily the way parents want them to communicate. Yeah, well, that's right. I, I was drawn to tears, I've got to say, with this, um, I think it was a Facebook post or something of a, a kid with autism spectrum disorder sitting on Santa's lap asking him if he was going to get presents because he's been naughty and he didn't mean to. You know, and it was this beautiful, oh. it was a beautiful yeah. response by Santa, you know, saying, you know, you're, you're a great kid and, and you know, you're worthy of who you are. So it was a, the perfect response. I guess the point I was going to make with um, regards to sensory stimulation and how a kid without neurodevelopmental issues might respond versus somebody with autism. I think it's really interesting that my wife works in, uh, as a teacher aide and, and she helps with behavior management. And so she yeah. goes around to this class, these various classes. And one of these classes, the teacher, who is brilliant, plays music. And, you know, all the kids are sitting there quietly learning doing their work and singing along. And it's really interesting. And they have their spread, their share of kids with autism, ASD, whatever. And these kids seem to respond to music. A lot of kids do. And I'm not quite sure why that is, but it is true that, you know, many kids on the spectrum, they um, they will respond beautifully to music. And I have one little boy who, um, you know, he is in school, but in a severe class. And um, just has behaviors all day long with tantrums and eloping behaviors, running away. And the only thing that calms him is his mom's singing. And he will, you know, he doesn't have much language except that he can sing every single lullaby that she sings. Wow. So, you know, and and that's a connectedness, right? There is a connectedness there. We think of kids on the autism spectrum as not having any social connections, but there are connections there. We just need to understand how to break in and make those connections and then build on those. Yeah. From a functional medicine perspective, what imbalances, deficiencies are evident and what do you mainly work on? You've mentioned gut, which is the seat of naturopathic or integrative medicine. But what do you see? Like, you know, I've, I think I've heard um, even Clostridium difficile as a, as a culprit. But what else? Yes. So, you know, specifically for autism, we know one of the first things is dietary changes. You know, when a kid comes into my office, the first thing I'll recommend is a trial on a gluten-free, casein-free diet. And, you know, some of these kids on the spectrum, they're literally eating because of their rigidities and their sensory issues and their taste preferences. They're only eating the same kind of chicken nuggets and the same box of mac and cheese every day. And any deviation is not going to be tolerated, right? So I, I totally get it. It can be so challenging, but it, but it is, it is doable. And I think it's worth a try mm. because gluten and casein, it's not because of their, the food sensitivities or their allergenic nature for kids. For some kids it is, but it's because they can get converted into these opioid-like compounds, the casomorphins and the gliadomorphins that literally are drugging some of our kids' brains. And I've had kids, you know, when, when the parents have gone off of gluten or casein or both, I recommend both initially, they'll tell me it's literally like the lights turn on and their kids are finally awake. 
that they're looking at them, that they're aware. One of the signs for uh, gliadomorphins and casomorphins, uh, when they're present, typically kids will have a super high pain threshold. These are kids who are falling on the ground, you know, as hard as you can imagine, and you're gasping, and they get up like nothing happened. You know, incredibly high pain tolerance because that's what opioids do, right? And so, you know, that that is definitely one of the uh, common features for kids on the spectrum. Not all of them, but it is common. Uh, mitochondrial imbalances and mitochondrial dysfunction are really key for many, many kids on the autism spectrum. And, you know, it's, it's really probably in those kids who have the mitochondrial dysfunction or my, not necessarily mitochondrial disorder because there are very few kids who are going to actually have, uh, you know, genetically verifiable mitochondrial disorder. Hmm. But we're talking about mitochondrial dysfunction. And yeah. what's interesting is that in the vaccine courts in the United States, many of the kids who have been found to actually have been harmed by vaccines. And in fact, the famous Hannah Poling case, who won a vaccine court, um, and, and literally because, because the vaccines, quote, caused her autism, but they found it was because she had an underlying mitochondrial defect. Right. So they got around saying that, that vaccines cause autism, but really it's because of her mitochondrial dysfunction that then it created too much mitochondrial and oxidative stress. Yeah. So the signs for mitochondrial dysfunction that we want to look at uh, are low core muscle tone. So these are kids that have a very difficult time sitting on the floor crisscross applesauce without their back completely slumped over. Or they sit in what's called the W position where they're sitting on their bottom and their feet are kind of splayed out to the side of them. So their, their legs are making a W pattern. These are kids who have a very poor kind of weak pencil grasp and will either put too little pressure, their writing is going to, or drawing is going to look like, you know, a a feathery line, or they're digging down and putting too much pressure when they're writing because they can't, they can't control their muscle strength, right? Because mitochondria are, are most active in our skeletal muscles, in our heart in our brain. And so we also see for kids with mitochondrial dysfunction, we'll see, and I always ask parents, what is your kid's endurance like? Because they may have a lot of, quote, energy and have spurts of really high intensive energy, but then they lose steam really quickly. And these are kids that parents will note that when they're sick, they may have regression. Right. That when they're, when they're sick, they may start to um, lose some milestones. Right. And that's, that's something that we can check on conventional labs. Yeah. We can check, you know, our, our AST, our creatine kinase, our free and total carnitine, lactate levels, pyruvate levels, and fasting plasma amino acid levels, and even urine organic acid levels. And those will all give us hints as to whether or not this child may have a mitochondrial dysfunction. Although I do have the caveat that when you check for mitochondrial dysfunction, it's in times of stress that our mitochondria show more stress. And so if your child, when you get the blood draw, is in you know, great physical Reasonably health, yeah, not no emotionally point. stressed, right? you might not see aberrations. Um, but if your child goes when they're sick and they have elevations in their lactate and their CK and their AST and their alanine to lysine ratio is off, then we know, okay, yes, here's clear evidence that there's mitochondrial dysfunction yeah. because we shouldn't have these markers you know, if, we're, if we don't have mitochondrial distress. 
Maybe that's one of the problems that's in, uh, encountered with um, studies is that they, they often group a, a cohort and do it from time rather than the timing of the patient. Um, they, yeah, they just look at, you know, when they're right? able, you know, when, when is the researcher available to do a blood, blood draw? Oh, it's on <laughs> Wednesday the 7th, you know? That's right. <laughs> and then, you know, of course, methylation is a big issue for kids on the spectrum and, you know, giving um, methyl B12 injections are the second intervention. So typically gluten-free, casein-free, and a trial of B12 shots are two of the, I would say, the um, the the quote biggest hitters, you know, where you're, where you might see those big wows. And I caution parents when we start biomedical work, we're not going to expect huge wows, you know, immediate shifts. We're going to, what we're looking for is slow and steady progress and improvement. But sometimes we have those wows and those wows can be associated with gluten-free casein diet, mitochondrial support and methylation support. The others are kind of all, you know, the other um, imbalances that we see in kids on the spectrum aren't necessarily so specific for kids on the spectrum, but we look for heavy metal and other sort of chemical toxicity. We look for chronic infections. Um, PANS is not uncommon to be found in kids with autism. And even if they don't have clear evidence of PANS, oftentimes they are showing brain autoantibodies. Uh, and of course, nutritional deficiencies or insufficiencies are huge because of their sensory issues, their taste issues, their their malabsorption, um, their food sensitivities and leaky gut. I mean, there's a whole variety of, of reasons why they may have nutrient insufficiencies, but uh, zinc is a huge one for kids on the spectrum. Yep. And when zinc is deficient, that's one of the primary primary underlying causes for sensory issues, especially auditory sensory issues where kids are putting their hands over their ears, you know, when you turn on the blender or run the vacuum. Um, Picky eating is associated with zinc deficiencies. These are kids who can't stand the tags on their shirts or the seams on their socks. And once you start correcting that zinc, then we can see significant improvements in those sensory issues and also uh, even an increased willingness to expand diet. It's not. It's interesting that you say not with sensory issues, not just hearing auditory, but you say the tags on their shirts. Mm-hmm. I remember my daughter, who is you know neurotypical and developing beautifully, but she and actually my son both went through a phase where we just spent you know maybe a half an hour trying to get out the door every morning for school because their shoes could not be tied tight. <laughs> And they would scream and cry and tell me, it's not the right tight. And I just was so frustrated. And then when I stepped back and I thought, okay, what is going on right now? And I thought, well, let me try giving them a a little bit of zinc. Not too much. I don't want them to get zinc toxic, but it takes a lot to get zinc toxic. And I started them on zinc and I increased their protein intake and their nuts and seeds, you know, all good sources of zinc. And it stopped. <laughs> so, you know, we go through these these points in time where if our immune systems are stressed and we've had, you know, let's say lots of colds and flus and our zinc is getting depleted, we might go through those phases of sensory, heightened sensory issues, even without having autism. Yeah. And we as adults go through those phases where we're just, our clothes don't feel right or, you know, we don't like the sound of you know, your, your desk mate chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what goes on in your office, Elisa. <laughs> can, I, can I just ask you, you mentioned nutrients. Do you, do you find that there's certain forms of nutrients that you tend to prefer? Like, for instance, you know, uh, in, say, 
off topic, but Wilson's disease, you, um, which is a copper overload, you tend to mm -hmm. use zinc acetate and that's the, you know, quote unquote preferred form. Some people prefer the picolinates, whereas other people prefer the diglycinates or the bisglycinates. Um, do you have a preference or do you tend to look more at the mineral that, that's the issue? You know, it's, it's, it's both. You know, for magnesium, it really depends on what I'm targeting. If there's a lot of constipation, I go for the magnesium citrate. Yeah. But if there are a lot of sleep disturbances and anxiety issues, then I'll use the magnesium glycinate form. Yeah. So I think it, it does depend a bit on what's going on. For zinc, I, I kind of go back and forth between the picolinate and the citrate. Some will say that the picolinate is a bit easier to absorb. I haven't found that clinically in my practice, but but again, we do use both. Yeah. Um, for for iron supplementation, I only use the bisglycinate form because it's just easier on the stomach. Yeah, much gentle. Yeah, so much more I, gentle. Sorry. Yeah, you know, I, I don't have a one particular form of these chelated minerals that I prefer. It's just I, I kind of look to see what else is going on and, and how else, you know, these other forms of minerals might be beneficial. I have eight other questions, but we, have, we haven't got enough time <laughs> to cover them today. Elisa, um, can I just ask, you'll be speaking at the 2018 Bioceutical Symposium. What yes. will you be speaking? So excited. Yeah, I can't wait to meet you in person. What will you be speaking <laughs> about there? And what can practitioners expect to take away after listening to you and learning from you? My first topic is going to be really identifying the root causes for the prevention and treatment of autoimmunity in kids. And this is a topic that's really near and dear to my heart because I'm seeing so many children at younger and younger ages with autoimmunity, even without any family history of autoimmunity. So there is something going on, and I did a ton of research to try to figure out the different potential triggers, and it is fascinating, fascinating. Some of the issues that I wouldn't have even thought of, uh, including, you know, food additives and, mm -hmm. um, um, of course, you know, the different prenatal factors. And, and so with this, I wanted to give practitioners more of a sort of basic science understanding of what we know in the evidence can trigger autoimmunity, specifically in children. And from there, look to see, well, what are our intervention points? for prevention of autoimmunity in kids, and if they have flipped over into developing autoimmune disease, what are the biggest therapeutic options that we can really target to really heal them and get them well? And we can absolutely heal them. You know, kids have had a, such a shorter history of garbage being put in them. <laughs> yes. So it's not always easy, but it is easier than in adults, most adults really reverse and heal their autoimmunity and, and get them thriving again. So that's exciting. And then the, um, the second session is going to be on pans and pandas and looking at, and so I know we did a two-part uh, podcast series, but in the talk, I'm going to dig in even more into the pathophysiology of what we know about pans and pandas. Um, and really get into the nitty gritty of what are the, you know, how do we diagnose PANS and PANDAS? What are our treatment options based on what we know in the science right now about the underlying imbalances immunologically that are going on? So 
hopefully with this, there are going to be some interventions and treatments that many practitioners will not have access to, like IVIG, which is fine. There's so many other interventions that we can do, even without heavy-duty pharmaceuticals, that can really bring our kids with pans and pandas very far and even, even recovered. Dr. Elisa Song, you know, the true measure of an expert is not what they propose their knowledge is, but their fascination, their curiosity with a subject, and indeed their care. You are abundant in all three. Seriously, I can't wait to meet you and to learn from you. And well, so, I can't wait to meet you and give you a hug. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, it will be it will be reciprocal. So, um, I look forward to seeing you in April 2018 at the Biocidical Symposium, and uh, I think we'll be having a couple of uh, resveratrol supplements there with your husband. Um, so, <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today, and and really detailing some of the more critical aspects of autism, ASD, and the spectrum disorders that surround them. Thank you, Elisa Song. Oh yeah, thank you, Andrew, for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you're loving our FX Medicine podcasts, please don't forget to share us with your colleagues, family and friends.